Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk Podcast. Our guest today is Murthy Samambala of Setpoint Medical. Murthy is a longtime MedTech vet, had led up Abbott for a couple of years, has a great story in MedTech that we'll get into. We'll also talk about Setpoint, which I think is one of the cooler MedTechs out there, although I do love them all. But Setpoint is one of those bioelectronics companies that reported some important clinical results over the summer. That's when I talked to Murthy. We'll talk a bit about that. Setpoint itself has also had some uh, financial news lately. You can look that up, but the company is definitely heading forward with determination and with a lot of hope for uh, curing diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we get into the, the, into the talk, though, I'd like to remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on June 16th and June 17th in Minneapolis. Go to medtechconference.com for more information. You can register there as well. Finally, uh, please stick around for the end of the podcast. I'll have a little personal news there as well. So without any further delay, let's hear from Murthy Samambatla of Setpoint. So I'm just going to, uh, let's hop in. I don't know, we, we, I know we've talked before uh, at OIS, and, uh, but I've never had a chance really to explore your, your path into medtech. How, uh, how did you become a CEO at a larger medtech company and now an exciting startup like Setpoint? Well, I started my career in uh, the electronics and aerospace uh, industry uh, up in the Bay Area. And I did that uh, for a few years. And uh, one of the senior folks in R&D uh, from that company uh, left to join uh, Guidant. And uh, he told me that uh, Guidant was developing this thing called a stent, which mm. was going to uh, revolutionize uh, the way uh, people are treated uh, for uh, cardiovascular disease. And uh, he said uh, they were still at the ground floor. There was a lot of innovation uh, to be done and uh, that, that someone like me would enjoy uh, being part of that organization. And um, as it turns out, Guidant had a few positions open. They were hiring uh, uh, you know, uh, large numbers of people back in the day. Uh, and I applied for a job uh, uh, you know, developing catheters. And uh, that's how I became part of the medtech industry. Interesting. We hear so much about guidance and it has still, I think, reverberates throughout the med tech industry. Just uh, it, it touched a lot of people and, and motivated a lot of people. What was your experience there? Uh, why was it such a special place to work? Yeah, it was a remarkable organization. First off, it was uh, very mission driven uh, with a uh, tremendous focus and uh, everything the company did on the uh, physicians and the patients. And um, the company was also uh, an innovation powerhouse. Uh, you know, at one point uh, when I joined, uh, something like uh, half of the products were less than two years old. And uh, the, the company had an interesting philosophy in that it didn't block, uh, you know, box in people uh, into you know, neat uh, roles. It allowed people to uh, explore uh, and, uh, and grow uh, with the organization. And uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that as part of teams with uh, fairly experienced people uh, who had uh, uh, developed products uh, many times over. So the learning curve was pretty short uh, in terms of transitioning from a different industry to healthcare, just given the speed and velocity of the activity there. Uh, and it had a great culture. Uh, everyone had fun uh, while working hard, and uh, it was a very competitive organization. Uh, with respect to, uh, uh, you know, our products versus the competitions. And you spent two years there as manager of, of new ventures. What was, uh, what was that experience like? 
Well, I started off, uh, uh, you know, working on catheter development, and uh, Guidant realized that uh, for the vascular business, uh, one had to think ahead. Uh, you know, drug-eluting stents were still on the horizon. They, uh, they still hadn't made their way to the market. And uh, the question really was, uh, you know, what do you do beyond stents? And that question was already being asked in the, in the 90s at Guy. <coughs> Pardon me. And um, uh, so, so the, the company had, uh, you know, a number of initiatives in uh, radiation therapy uh, to treat vascular disease. Uh, you know, uh, valvular disease was uh, still something early, but uh, it was under discussion at Guyton back in the day. So the division felt that it was important to create a group that is at the intersection of R&D and uh, business development to uh, look beyond stenting, uh, to investigate uh, ideas of the future uh, for the treatment of cardiovascular disease. And I became part of that group. Interesting. And you remain with Guidant uh, through the acquisition? Yes, I remain with Guidant through the acquisition. Over time, I... Uh, uh, you know, was uh, asked to work on the drug-eluting stent program, and I kind of grew through the ranks with that program and uh, and remained until the acquisition by Abbott. That's right. You were part of the Abbott group, and that led, of course, to your your rise at uh, Abbott Medical Optics. But let's talk a bit about that, uh, sort of that decision to, to, to stay at Abbott. Was it, uh, did you have any interest in the startup life at, at that point, uh, or were you really interested in seeing how life oper how life functions under an even larger uh, med tech company or, or, or medical company? Yeah, to be honest, I really wasn't asking those questions because, uh, you know, I was uh, by then the uh, vice president of the drug eluting stent program, and uh, we were working uh, to get the Zion stent approved uh, by the FDA uh, and other regulatory agencies. So my focus at that time was entirely on seeing that program all the way, uh, you know, to the finish line. And uh, that's kind of where my focus was. And uh, I'll have to say that Abbott did uh, a really great job of, uh, uh, you know, with the acquisition, making uh, the leaders at uh, Guidant feel uh, very welcome. Uh, for the most part, they let uh, the vascular business uh, operate uh, autonomously because they realized uh, we were in the midst of something uh, really important and that uh, perturbing it at that time uh, would probably not be a good idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, is a, it is a very supportive, uh, uh, you know, uh, approach from Abbott. Uh, so there was really no need for me or no reason for me uh, to think about uh, doing anything else at that time. Mm -hmm. And what uh, convinced you to, uh, to shift away from the vascular group and, and start to, to work in other businesses at Abbott? Well, to be honest, I... Uh, uh, I became a little uh, burned out uh, while I really enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, it was many sure. years of uh, very heavy lifting uh, to get the uh, uh, drug eluting stent approved. And uh, I, I realized that I enjoyed uh, interactions with physicians uh, and the sales and marketing aspects of the business just as much as I did R&D. And uh, indeed, I uh, spending uh, a fair amount of time with physicians uh, even back then. And um, I felt like uh, that I should, I mean, back then I had strategic marketing uh, in my organization, but I felt that I should uh, uh, make a clean break, uh, you know, with uh, the business unit and kind of uh, dive entirely into commercial operations uh, to gain that experience. 
And again, uh, Abbott was uh, very supportive. A role opened up in uh, Australia uh, to run the business in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and, I, and I took that role. Uh, now, this was still within Abbott Vascular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and from there, um, uh, you know, I got uh, uh, a call from the CEO of Abbott uh, to uh, run a, uh, a relatively small molecular diagnostics business. Uh, so uh, I, I essentially did, uh, you know, whatever the company wanted me to do. Uh, none of it was really planned. Uh, and, you know, I enjoyed uh, every role I had. Fascinating. And, and you've got to lead up uh, AMO, which was another significant ap- acquisition by Abbott, uh, the medical optics group. Uh, you spent three years as president of that. What was that experience like? Was that your first opportunity to sort of play the, the CEO role of, of a business? Well, the, the molecular diagnostic business, while uh, on a smaller scale, uh, you know, was a fully integrated business. Mm-hmm. So, so that is really the uh, the first time I did it, and obviously uh, AMO was on an entirely different scale, uh, a well established business with uh, a pedigree in ophthalmology. Uh, so for me, that was uh, another uh, uh, you know uh, incredible experience. Uh, ophthalmology uh, was a field that I uh, didn't know anything about; mm-hmm. uh, so I had to learn from scratch. And my predecessor, who uh, ran AMO, Jim Mazo, was a very uh, supportive. Uh, uh, you know, mentor in uh, bringing me up the curve uh, on ophthalmology. And, you know, I began with just a lot of time in the field, uh, getting to meet uh, uh, ophthalmologists, uh, learning the business, uh, spending a lot of time internally. Uh, AMO had many plants internationally. So just uh, immersing myself uh, uh, both internally and externally, just learning the business uh, in the first, uh, in the first couple of months. So, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that experience, and uh, ophthalmology had uh, a dynamism uh, that was uh, uh, on a different level than most other businesses I'd been with. Mm-hmm. Now, in cardiovascular, in the early days, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, and over time, as it happens, uh, you know, businesses mature. Uh, ophthalmology still had a lot of uh, dynamism and excitement, uh, in uh, in large part because there was a significant component of uh, you know, patient direct pay in ophthalmology right. that really supported uh, a lot of uh, innovation. So for me, that is uh, another new learning experience, uh, the cash pay businesses uh, in, in LASIK and uh, uh, premium intraocular lenses. So it is a combination of just learning and, uh, uh, and being part of a, of a very uh, exciting and dynamic industry. That's right. And the positions are, are particularly innovative as well and, and really uh, work closely with industry. It's, it really is a unique specialty. So did you go into your career with an eye, with, with the knowledge that someday you wanted to, to run a startup, to run a company, or did that uh, desire develop over time? It was always in the back of my head. You know, my uh, career started in innovation and even... Uh, uh, in the uh, at the business where I started, the electronics in the aerospace industry, uh, my role was in a startup division of that company, which I really enjoyed. And uh, a because uh, things moved really fast. Uh, B uh, uh, you were trying to make your way uh, through a path that wasn't yet established. Um, uh, and C uh, uh, you know in terms of um, uh, uh, satisfaction and moving the needle, uh, 
you know, I still look back, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to those days as being some of the most exciting. <laughs> so uh, I always had in the back of my head uh, the the desire to uh, get back in the business of uh, of innovation and and doing something uh, over time that was truly transformational. Excellent. Sorry, I have my mute on. So let's talk about the the move to uh, to Evelis. I mean, that's in the aesthetics industry. Uh, it's another industry like ophthalmology that's uh, that is relies upon private pay, and I think has physicians who are equally interested in working with with industry. How did you uh, happen to move into that space, and and what was your experience in aesthetics? How'd you like it? Well, uh, you know, uh, Evelis started off as a uh, as a different company. It was much broader than aesthetics. Uh, it is a company focused on uh, self-paid medicine across uh, various specialties, ophthalmology, uh, dentistry, aesthetics. And, uh, and for a variety of reasons, uh, I had to work uh, with the board to narrow the focus of the company. And uh, it became uh, very apparent that one of the key value drivers of the company was the aesthetic neurotoxin. And like any startup, there's only so many things you can do at once. And uh, I think we made the right decision by uh, putting our focus and energy uh, into the aesthetic toxin to get it across the finish line with the FDA, and also to uh, finance the company appropriately to uh, execute a, a commercial launch against some of the biggest names in the industry. Uh, so, uh, so that is a, a, a quite an experience. Uh, I'd never, uh, you know, uh, done restructuring, uh, you know, at that level before. Uh, it was a, a, an incredible opportunity to uh, take the company public mm -hmm. and get the IPO done. But I realized through the process, and I, I had these discussions with the board uh, several times along the way, that A, my passion wasn't in aesthetics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are passionate about aesthetics, and uh, you know, uh, it, it, there's, there's definitely an important role uh, for aesthetics products and that industry. And B, I felt like I didn't have the expertise necessarily to, uh, uh, to lead the company to the next level uh, in aesthetics. It's a very uh, different kind of industry. Uh, the, the intersection between medical aesthetics and beauty, there's a lot of things uh, that are required in that industry that I, I didn't believe uh, played well uh, you know, to my experience or skill sets. Mm -hmm. So for both of those reasons, uh, you know, after I took Evelis uh, public, uh, you know, we brought in uh, a person who's highly experienced uh, in aesthetics to run the company. And uh, I, you know, my desire was to get back uh, into uh, advancing uh, novel therapies that could, uh, you know, help people with uh, chronic conditions or life-threatening conditions. Uh, that's what my passion is. And that's where my expertise is. Uh, so, so that's that was my journey at Evelis, uh, and I left uh, Evelis last year, uh, and I thought I'd take a few months off to figure out what I wanted to do next. What I knew was that the the next project had to be truly transformational. Uh, I was at a stage where I, I wanted to work on something uh, that had a, a very significant potential uh, to uh, help patients mm -hmm. and alter paradigm of care. Uh, so, and that's how I ended up at Setpoint Medical. That's excellent. And I want to get into that in a moment, but I want to just, just back up for, uh, to talk about the IPO for a second. What was unique about that experience taking a company public? Is it really a box 
uh, a separate box that needs to be checked by any aspiring CEO? Is it really an, ex an, an experience unlike any other? And if so, what does it teach you? What, is, what do you learn? Yes, it is an experience unlike uh, any other. And I, I, I don't necessarily know that it's a box that needs to be checked, but I think it's an experience that's helpful uh, if you ever have to do it again. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so uh, it's, it's unique in, uh, in many different respects. Uh, you know, the, the key really is uh, you're raising capital uh, in the public markets in a very uh, short, defined time frame uh, uh, to fund the company forward. So a, a big part of it is uh, really selling the company, uh, positioning its potential, uh, and selling the management team uh, to, uh, to public investors. And the complicated thing about IPOs is uh, markets change, and they can change uh, quite suddenly. They can change quite dramatically. And uh, uh, so, so there's always a risk when you're planning an IPO. So uh, leading up to the IPO, we spent a lot of time uh, really understanding what worked well and what didn't work well uh, with our pitches. We did non-deal roadshows. So uh, you've got to have a very thick skin and you've got to have mm -hmm. uh, a very open mind uh, to learning and improving along the way. And, uh, and you know, a good banker will, uh, will give you a very direct feedback on uh, what, what you did well and what you didn't in so-called non-deal roadshows. So fortunately, uh, the team that was on the roadshows uh, with me uh, all had this attitude of, uh, you know, we've got to take every uh, meeting as an opportunity uh, to, to do better in the next meeting. So that is a bit of a learning experience. Uh, it, uh, it definitely brings some humility. <laughs> mm -hmm, uh, to you. Uh, and uh, you know, the IPO process itself, uh, you know, as uh, we started our uh, actual IPO roadshow, uh, uh, the markets turned on us. The very first day of our roadshow, the Dow uh, collapsed. It had the biggest collapse in points in years and years and years, which is <laughs> never a good thing to, uh, to start the IPO process. And uh, many of the other companies that were planning IPOs, uh, you know, that week uh, pulled uh, their IPO. But we persisted, we continued, and uh, it's a grueling process uh, because you're repeating uh, the same message uh, multiple times, you've got to remain fresh, uh, you've got to keep your energy up, uh, and you've got to do that uh, for, uh, for almost a full week, uh, nonstop, uh, flying from city to city. It's, uh, it becomes a blur, uh, and the secret really is uh, to keep the enthusiasm, to keep the excitement, and to keep the energy uh, high uh, all the way to the finish line. So uh, I'd say it was uh, quite a learning experience. Yeah, it sounds like some, some sort of a CEO boot camp of sorts. You really have to just, just dive in. Excellent. Well, I, I, let's talk about Setpoint because it is one of those companies, as you indicated earlier, that is uh, so fascinating, has such a great technology and, and has potential to do so much good. Uh, tell us a little bit about Setpoint's approach. Give us sort of the, the overall introduction. Well, uh the the set point the company set point is based on a discovery made uh, almost twenty years ago uh, by a, a neurosurgeon uh, in Long Island, New York, uh, by the name of Kevin Tracy, and he discovered a function uh, for the vagus nerve that had uh, previously not been described. Uh, the vagus nerve has a lot of functions involved with uh, regulating your uh, uh, respiration. 
your cardiovascular function and uh, your GI uh, function. So those, uh, those functions of the vagus were well described. It is one of the 12 cranial nerves. It's the uh, longest nerve uh, of these 12 nerves. And what Kevin Tracy uh, discovered and described is that the vagus nerve, in addition to the known functions, uh, is a sentinel. It surveils the body for peripheral inflammation. And when the vagus nerve uh, senses inflammation, uh, that inflammation gets sent up the vagus nerve to the brainstem. And a corresponding signal is sent back down the vagus. The vagus nerve is like a bundle of uh, fibers. It's like a transatlantic uh, fiber bundle. Uh, a corresponding signal is sent down the vagus to downregulate that inflammation. And, and, and that is done essentially uh, through a very specific uh, signaling pathway uh, uh, called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway because it involves uh, acetylcholine signaling that renders inflammatory cells quiescent. So they stop secreting these very uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines such as TNF, IL-6, and so on, mm -hmm. which obviously are targets for some of the biggest drugs uh, in the U.S. today. So it's an endogenous mechanism. It's highly evolved. It's conserved across species, mice, canines, humans. And, um, you know, uh, as you know, uh, many of these cytokines, such as TNF, which cause inflammation, are also necessary to fight infections. So there's a balancing act. And if the vagus didn't balance the uh, ability to tamp down inflammation while still being able to fight infections, we'd all be extinct and you and I wouldn't be talking today. So <laughs> it's an endogenous mechanism. And so once that was dis discovered, the question then became in patients with autoimmune diseases where you have a runaway inflammation, where the endogenous mechanisms are not working as they should, where patients are put on immunosuppressive drugs to bring down the level of inflammation, can you reactivate this reflex by electrically stimulating the vagus nerve? And uh, you know, the, the short answer is uh, through animal studies, numerous animal studies and human studies, uh, the company has demonstrated uh, that yes, you can activate this reflex in humans and you can downregulate inflammation uh, in these uh, patients with autoimmune diseases. Let's talk about your lead program. What is your lead program and where is it in, in, uh, in the clinical testing? Well, our lead program uh, is in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, which uh, you know, is, uh, is a disease state, as are all autoimmune diseases with uh, a lot of unmet needs. About one and a half million Americans uh, diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, it's a $30 billion drug industry because of uh, very expensive uh, biologic drugs, as well as uh, targeted synthetic drugs uh, that are used to treat these patients. So in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, the company ran a proof of concept study in Europe. Uh, this is before my time. And they demonstrated that uh, with this approach, you could reduce disease activity quite significantly, similar to what you would see with these uh, targeted biologic or synthetic drugs. and. Uh, and you could do that in patients that were refractory to multiple drugs, as well as uh, in patients who were still naive to these very potent drugs. So that is, a, that is really the first demonstration in humans that you could activate this reflex 
and actually reduce disease activity in these patients and suppress the production of these uh, very pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, that study wasn't done with SetPoint's proprietary device, but it was done with an off-the-shelf device used to treat patients with uh, drug refractory epilepsy, and the company reprogrammed that device uh, to, uh, to run this trial with our proprietary pulse parameters. Now, uh, what the company realized through all of its translational research is that the amount of energy required to activate this reflex is very low compared to what you typically see in uh, neurostimulation approaches or, or even with epilepsy. Uh, you need to uh, activate uh, or stimulate the nerve for only a minute a day to render these very inflammatory cells uh, quiescent for up to two days. And that obviously has huge implications on the design of your device. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what allowed us to truly miniaturize a device. It's only two cc's in volume. Uh, it's got no electrical wires or leads. Uh, the electrodes are integrated into the device. It has a rechargeable lithium-ion battery, <coughs> which uh, the patient charges by wearing uh, a neck charger for just a few minutes a week. And... Uh, and the, uh, the implanting physician is a neurosurgeon. The treating physician is a rheumatologist. The rheumatologist is given an iPad with an app on it with which they can titrate the current for each individual patient. And that gets programmed into the implant, which is uh, implanted in the left cervical vagus, halfway between the mandible and the, uh, and the clavicle. And it's, uh, it's about two centimeters deep, so the patient can't feel it or palpate it. So, so that is the system, the proprietary system we developed, and we ran a, a U.S. FDA pilot study in rheumatoid arthritis uh, with this proprietary system uh, last year. Now, uh, the, uh, we submitted an abstract to the uh, uh, European uh, uh, League Against Rheumatism uh, uh, organization. They have a conference, the EULA conference, and it got accepted as a, as a late breaker, uh, as, a, as an oral presentation. So, um, you know, we, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the, uh, those results. We're very pleased uh, with the results from this pilot study. Uh, and those will become public uh, uh, next month. So from here, we would like to initiate a pivotal study, a randomized, double-blind, uh, sham-controlled pivotal study uh, in the U.S. towards a PMA submission for FDA approval uh, and we'd like to initiate this trial uh, by the end of 2019. So the, the, the device is implanted by surgeons to, to, to diminish the impact of rheumatoid arthritis. Is this a new patient population for, for surgeons to be treating, or are they currently involved in the treating of rheumatoid arthritis now somehow? I'm not sure how they might fit. Yeah, so current treatments uh, for rheumatoid arthritis uh, are almost uh, entirely uh, drug-based therapies. And... Uh, uh, neurosurgeons are quite familiar with uh, vagus nerve stimulation, uh, as they've done it uh, for almost 20 years now uh, to treat patients with epilepsy, albeit with a different type of device and a larger device. Mm -hmm. so they have familiar with vagus nerve stimulation, but, uh, but traditionally, neurosurgeons have not treated uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So I'd have to think that they're excited about this opportunity to be able to treat more patients this way? Uh, they're very excited because... Uh, you know, once they realize that the central nervous system uh, plays a central role in regulating the amount of inflammation in the body 
uh, it obviously resonates uh, with them, uh, you know, given their uh, deep understanding of the nervous system. And uh, when they look at the device, when they look at the footprint of the device uh, and, uh, and the potential to uh, impact an entirely new population of patients, they're very excited. That's excellent. And are you at this point, I know you're, you're still working with the FDA, but do you have a parallel track going on with, uh, with insurers? And are you establishing some sort of reimbursement channel at this point? Yes. Uh, so we have uh, a parallel track where, uh, you know, we are working in parallel uh, with uh, insurers. Now, I should point out that uh, one of the really interesting things about our approach is, uh, unlike a lot of medical device technologies, which are cost-effective. In general, uh, most active implantables are cost-effective uh, by traditionally uh, uh, established measures, but not many of them are cost-saving versus the, uh, the prior standard of care. Mm -hmm. So with all of the uh, analysis we've done, the health economic analysis we've done, it is uh, very apparent that our therapy is not only cost-effective, but significantly cost-saving versus these very expensive uh, biologic and targeted synthetic drugs because there's uh, an upfront payment uh, for, the, uh, uh, you know, for the device and procedure by uh, insurers. And because the uh, device has been designed to have uh, a, a useful life as an implant of at least 10 years, uh, in subsequent years, you're, uh, you're saving costs relative to biologic drugs. And just to give you a perspective, uh, biologic therapies uh, today cost tens of thousands of dollars a year, depending on what drug the patient's being put on. And there's no cure for these diseases. Mm -hmm. These are chronic, lifelong conditions. So patients are on these very immunosuppressive drugs that are very expensive. Uh, Co-pays uh, uh, are difficult for many patients. Uh, and um, so, so there's, a, there's a very significant unmet need for a therapy that can reduce disease activity without causing all of these side effects resulting from immunosuppression, such as infections. Uh, many of these drugs have black box warnings. Patient compliance with these drugs isn't very good. Within uh, two years of being put on these drugs, about half the patients are off these drugs because of some combination of primary or secondary drug failure and intolerance to these drugs. So uh, for all of these factors, there's a, a very significant unmet need uh, that we believe we can meet in a very cost-effective manner. So we've had uh, preliminary conversations with the private payers, and uh, generally speaking, uh, they're very supportive of an approach like this. So, so a little different mm -hmm. than most other device therapies. That's great. So, so could you potentially be, could users of this technology um, be able to get off drugs at their currently taking uh, because of this system, or, or is this used only on people who are not able to take any existing drugs, and this is providing relief to people who can't find it anywhere else? Well, that's a good question. Uh, so uh, like I said before, uh, the goal uh, with uh, the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis is an approach called uh, treat to target, where you, you attempt to reduce the disease activity, activity in these patients with all available tools. So if a patient doesn't respond to one drug, they'll cycle the patient onto another drug. And uh, so this is called, uh, sometimes called futile cycling, because uh, once the patient is off the first drug, the responsiveness keeps falling for the second, third, fourth drug, and so on. 
So, uh, so where does our therapy fit? So initially, our target is going to be patients who failed at least one uh, biologic or targeted synthetic drug, because uh, you know, uh, because of what I said earlier, that the responsiveness of these patients keeps falling as you cycle them to the second, third, fourth drug. So that's going to be the initial target. Now, uh, in clinical trials, what you typically do is you wash patients off the biologic drug they're on. And in the trial, it's a monotherapy, which means uh, the, the patients may be on background uh, generic drugs, but they're not on these very potent uh, immunosuppressive drugs. And um, uh, so it's really your therapy by itself. Now, not everyone is going to respond entirely to our therapy, just like not everyone responds entirely to these very potent biologic drugs. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, the gold standard in this space is to be able to, uh, uh, to uh, get a 20% improvement uh, for the patients with these very potent, potent drugs. So, uh, so, so but with our therapy, we don't expect a 100% responder rate. And uh, we fully expect that if, uh, for those patients who don't respond entirely, that uh, physicians uh, will put these patients on uh, targeted biologics to try to get try to get the disease activity down. Interesting. And if you could for a moment just uh, characterize the conversations you're having with the FDA, where are you with the planning of that pivotal trial? Is it, uh, are the, the parameters set yet or are you still in the early, early parts of that conversation? Yeah, so we're still in the early parts of the conversation. We've started that conversation uh, uh, with the FDA and uh, obviously there's no precedent uh, for a device like this in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so the device arm of the, C, uh, of the uh, FDA, CDRH, uh, has not had experience uh, approving devices uh, in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so, uh, but the drug side uh, of the FDA is obviously quite experienced. So in conversations with the FDA on uh, a trial that's appropriate uh, for, in, for an innovative medical device, and uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll continue those discussions over the next, uh, uh, next few months. Excellent. I want to get into Crohn's disease in, in a moment, but I sort of wanted to follow up on that uh, on the on the trailblazing position that that set point is in. Does it compare to the uh, the energy you had at uh, at Guidant when you were developing the the stents? Uh, the fact that you're sort of creating something so new and, and so potentially beneficial does it does it feel very familiar? And, and is this what you were looking for when you uh, when you accepted the job at set point? Yes, definitely. Uh, this has the potential to be absolutely transformational for people with multiple autoimmune diseases. We talked about rheumatoid arthritis, but we believe that uh, given the mechanism of action, and we have uh, some clinical evidence that it's also applicable to patients with inflammatory bowel disease, uh, be it Crohn's disease or even ulcerative colitis. And we have uh, uh, some early but exciting animal data in uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, and, you know, that's something that needs to be developed systematically before we're ready for a human clinical study. So uh, the, the potential is quite significant in uh, providing alternatives to these very potent immunosuppressive drugs. So from my perspective, uh, this is exactly uh, the kind of role and the kind of company uh, I was looking to, be, uh, to become part of. 
Excellent. Well, let's talk a bit about Crohn's because uh, you did have some news there as well. You had an interesting, uh, some interesting study results. Yeah, so uh, uh, th this Crohn's study was also done in Europe. And uh, uh, this was an interesting study in that we used multiple lenses to look at how patients did with our therapy. And we had two cohorts of patients in the, uh, in the Crohn's study. Uh, one cohort of patients were washed off the biologics. Now, many of the same drugs that are used for rheumatoid arthritis, such as DNF inhibitors, are also used to treat patients with Crohn's disease. So in one cohort of patients, we washed them off these uh, immunosuppressive drugs, and they went on uh, monotherapy with our uh, device, uh, with our therapy. And uh, another cohort of patients were allowed to continue with the biologics, and then we added a therapy on top of that. And like I said before, we used uh, uh, multiple lenses to look at how patients did. We looked at traditionally uh, accepted and validated the clinical uh, measures of disease activity. You know, how's the patient feeling and so on. We also looked at biomarkers. There's uh, established biomarkers in Crohn's disease, and it's an objective way to look at whether or not uh, you're reducing disease activity. And finally, we did endoscopy in these patients to look for uh, objective evidence that there was mucosal healing in these patients. And, um, and what we found is that through all of these lenses, uh, we had a, a very significant impact on disease activity uh, in these patients uh, and uh, verified objectively with uh, biomarker suppression and endoscopy. So it is a very positive proof of concept study and we saw the kinds of results that you would expect to see with uh, these uh, immunosuppressive drugs. What kind of conversations do you have with people who are unfamiliar with Setpoint in what you're trying to do? What is their initial reaction to this notion that you can use vagal ner ner nerve stimulation to, uh, to battle inflammation? Uh, they're surprised <laughs> and uh, very intrigued uh, because uh, uh, you know, the mechanism of action is very different than most device therapies. And uh, unusually for a medical device, the mechanism of action is very well established and very well understood through dozens of publications. Also, the fact that it's an endogenous mechanism intrigues people. Uh, in the vagus nerve, like I said before, uh, from an evolutionary uh, perspective, uh, is kind of like this control mechanism, like a rheostat to find the right uh, balance in uh, reducing the level of inflammation, hence the name of the company, Setpoint Medical. I mean, uh, what we're attempting to do is to restore uh, the, uh, the body to its natural physiologic setpoint. So people are very intrigued, and uh, because the science is so well described, uh, they get quickly on board with, uh, with exactly how it works. And obviously, uh, uh, what we need to do is uh, demonstrate uh, the, the safety and effectiveness in a larger controlled trial. And that's what we'll do with a pivotal study. Where does Setpoint fit into the larger uh, bioelectronic um, medicine field? Uh, do you see yourself as a leader? Are you, are you tracking someone else? Uh, do you see yourself as the pace setter? We'd be definitely a leader in the field. Uh, as, uh, as measured by uh, the, uh, the amount of evidence uh, that we have generated, uh, preclinical, clinical. 
Uh, now, bioelectronic is a very broad term. It can mean uh, uh, many different things. Uh, from our perspective, uh, you know, bioelectronic medicine is uh, kind of uh, uh, neurostimulation or other electrical stimulation uh, through uh, well-established uh, physiologic uh, pathways uh, to have a, a positive impact on a, on a disease state. So, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time figuring out what the right approach was. Uh, you know, initially when the company was first founded, uh, the company spent a lot of time looking at non-invasive methods. Uh, can you non-invasively stimulate the vagus nerve? And we were unsuccessful in doing so uh, consistently. And it became very apparent that you needed uh, an implant that directly uh, stimulates the uh, vagus nerve. So while the uh, definition of bioelectronic medicine is very broad, I think ultimately uh, any approach that can stimulate nerves and has the right body of evidence uh, to, to demonstrate it can have a meaningful impact in patients as, uh, you know, as, uh, as demonstrated with a blinded study, uh, I think would fall in that category. So we're, we're certainly a leader in the field. Excellent. And final question. PitchBook has you uh, last raising a round in uh, August of 2017, a $30 million round in the capital raise to date at $90 million. Uh, are those, uh, is that data up to date? And, and where is Setpoint in, in fundraising? Will you be seeking some capital to pay for this Pivotal trial? Yes. Uh, so, uh, so, so, the, so the last round, uh, which was a Series D, was $30 million. And the company has raised uh, uh, $85 million uh, to date. And uh, we're currently uh, uh, in the process of raising funds uh, for our Series E to fund the pivotal study uh, all the way through a PMA submission. And you've already, I know, drawn capital from uh, investor from capital investors and VC investors as well. Do you expect to uh, to broaden your bench to bring in more strategics or or uh, any other type of investor you're looking for to participate in this round? Yeah, so we got a very uh, interesting investor base, uh, very high quality investors. Uh, we got both venture investors and strategics who are highly supportive of the company. But moving forward, uh, you know, we'd like to bring in uh, new investors as well uh, to uh, to fund the company forward, uh, knowing uh, that our current investor base is is highly supportive of the company. Great. And I know I said final question before, but this will be the final question for the interview. That was the final question about Setpoint. <laughs> Any advice for someone who is moving into med tech and 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 wants to build a career that uh, that tracks yours? Anything? Any lessons you learned uh, about running a company or about just finding opportunities to advance that you'd like to uh, like to pass on? Yeah, my advice is uh, that you know it's one of the most gratifying professions uh, that you can choose uh, because the impact of uh, medical device technology is often felt by the patient uh, early, and it's quite clear. And, um, uh, you know, uh, medical device technology across the uh, board, uh, whether it is uh, cardiovascular disease or orthopedics uh, or, or neurology, has had a very significant impact on patient lives. So for anyone considering uh, medical device technology, I wholeheartedly uh, support the decision to do so. Now, the industry has gone through a lot of change. Uh, it used to be a cottage industry uh, many years ago. Uh, regulations uh, weren't uh, 
uh, as uh, stringent as they are today. And certainly the reimbursement pathway uh, has become complicated in, uh, in medical devices. So uh, certainly there's pathways available uh, where the reimbursement pathway is already established uh, where you're developing a technology that improves on an existing technology. But for anyone uh, pursuing the PMA pathway, my advice would be uh, to make sure you're working on something truly transformational. And uh, because uh, it does require effort, not only in terms of FDA approvals, but, uh, but in terms of lining up reimbursement. So thinking about that early in the process and making that uh, a critical part of whatever project is being developed, I think is going to be a key to success in addition to all of the uh, technical work, R&D, quality operations, thinking through where you fit in uh, in the payers paradigm early uh, is going to be really critical in, uh, in ensuring success down the road. That's terrific. Thanks so much for joining us today, Murthy. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, that is a wrap wrap of this episode of the MedTech Talk podcast, but also a wrap of my time on the MedTech Talk podcast. A little bit of news, I've accepted a new position where I'll still be focusing on MedTech. I'll still be creating conferences, doing a lot more writing and podcast creation in the MedTech space. Looking forward to telling more of your stories, but I really wanted to thank you for the time you committed to this podcast, for the kind words you've shared with me about this podcast. And uh, just for the community that we've built here together, it's been a true joy to be part of it. Thank you to every guest I've had on the podcast. Thank you again to all of our listeners. Thank you to my colleagues, both at Healthogy and then later at CHI. It's been a pleasure to work with you all. And finally, to the MedTech world, I hope you will continue to, uh, to be part of my story. Keep an eye out for conferences and content that I'll be working on. We'll be, uh, you'll be hearing from me very soon. Again, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at MedTechTom. Or, uh, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would love to continue this conversation. I'd love to continue to be part of this great MedTech community. Thanks, folks. 